Well, good morning again, church. Pastor Jason coming to you. I'm actually recording this message uh, from my home on Friday. So this is coming to you uh, delayed, recorded, and then uh, played now in the live stream. We are up here uh, hunkered down, sheltered in place like everybody else, and we're doing okay. Uh, thank you for those of you who've reached out and offered to pray and asked for prayer requests. Uh, our family's doing well, and we're finding different creative ways to occupy the time, and we sure are praying for you. We miss being there in Huntington, and we're looking forward to, Lord willing, uh, moving down there within a few weeks to be back with our back with our church family. So, you know, well, recently we have uh, witnessed a new craze sweep the nation. Uh, there was a particular product that it seemed just everyone wanted to get their hands on. Crowds gathered and people lined up to wait for their turn to acquire it. We saw people walk out of the store with theirs in their hands and, and you could just see the relief on their faces. I mean, who would have ever predicted that people would be so excited about toilet paper? toilet paper. Yeah. The recent rush to the grocery stores to uh, to stock and hoard is something that we're all aware of. And it seems rather silly. We may even joke and laugh about it. And I think we're going to look back and realize that we fell into the herd mentality, the herd mentality, one that leads us to think, well, everyone else is going, so I better go too, without really thinking it through. It's just this emotional reaction. You know, but I was thinking about this the other day, and it occurred to me how this is really reflective of part of our human condition, and which is the temptation and the tendency to run after the same things that everyone else does. You know, in a broader sense than the recent rush to the stores, we see this at work in our culture and our human nature. We are a culture of things having things, getting things, getting new things, upgrading our things. You know, one recent term uh, in our cultural language is FOMO, FOMO, F-O-M-O. -O. Maybe you've heard of it. It stands for fear of missing out. And it usually means that someone is afraid of being left out of an activity or they're on the outside of an information circle, outside of, you know, not in on the information. But FOMO, fear of missing out, it also speaks to our things. And it goes deeper than just merely desiring the latest and greatest, but there's even an actual fear or sense of unease associated with being left behind or a comfort level that we derive from having the newest version of whatever it is. And you know, this is in our flesh. It's in our sin nature. You know, the Bible calls it envy or coveting. But our culture doesn't help us at all. It's in our flesh, but our culture just adds to it. Much of our advertising is aimed at getting us to compare ourselves to others and manipulating us into discontent. And so we misuse and we mismanage our resources, certainly our money, our treasure, but also our time and our talents, our abilities. But the message of the scriptures is clear and can really be summed up this way. When it comes to money, be wise, but also be free. Be wise, but also be free. It's definitely good and commendable to be wise and diligent in our financial planning. The scriptures say a lot about planning for the future and being diligent, saving consistently, and even wise investing. There, there are dozens of passages about being wise with our resources. 
but one is Proverbs 27, verse 23, which says, Be sure you know the condition of your flocks and give careful attention to your herds. You know, about the, um, about, at, at that time, the size and condition of your flocks and your herds were a sign of your wealth back in the Bible times. So you would want to make sure that they were provided for, protected, and nurtured. And in the same way today, a wise person is going to provide for their family and protect their assets and nurture wise investments. So much can be lost from a lack of, of diligence. So be wise and diligent. But the scriptures also lead us uh, to, to avoid serving money. Instead, be free from it. Be wise with money, but be free from it. Meaning, be content in your heart and your mind. Don't let it rule you. Don't let it drive you. You know, in 14, Jesus says, No servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And then after he said this, the Pharisees who were lovers of money, they heard these things and they ridiculed him. Jesus says that money is another thing out there that seeks our allegiance. It wants us to love it, to need it, to crave it. And the Pharisees were already trapped by their love of money. And so they ridiculed Jesus for his teaching here. But it's important we check in and we're honest with ourselves about our attitudes about money and possessions. And... 1 Timothy chapter 6, Paul has something to say about free, being free from the love of money. And starting in verse 6, he says, Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and trap into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Verse 10, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and, and pierced themselves with many griefs. You know, we've all heard this passage misquoted. Sometimes you hear money is the root of all evil, but it's the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Clearly, there's a big difference between the two. Money isn't a problem until you give it power with your affection. Money isn't a problem until you give it power with your affection. That's when it can lead to all kinds of evil. So let's be wise and let's be diligent, but let's also be free in our hearts and our minds from it. You know, there are a number of cultural factors that impact our thinking, our feeling, and behaviors with money and possessions. For one, there is a designed expiration a designed expiration by manufacturers and developers. They don't make them like they used to, whether it be cars or appliances or electronics. They want us to buy new stuff, so products are actually designed to wear out and force us to purchase the same things over and over again. Likewise, there's a perceived expiration at work in our advertising. There's a designed expiration and a perceived expiration. I mean, who has an iPhone 5 anymore? You know, I mean, we all feel the pressure to have one of the most recent models because they're better, they're faster, and there's a measure of fashion or status attached to them. But then there's also this rhythm of life that we've all just grown accustomed to. We often fall into this work to live and live to work rhythm of life. And it often looks like this. 
before we wake up, we go to work, and after work, we've had a long day and we're tired, and so we find some way to numb ourselves and check out, usually with TV. Uh, and we spend our money on bills and food and shopping. We, and then we go to sleep, usually for not long enough. And then we get up and we go to work and we, you know, we repeat the whole cycle over and over again. But this isn't the vision that God has for his people. One of rote monotony that's so dependent on the sources that we accumulate, which is often born from the circumstances requiring our isolation from others. Circumstances that lead to overextending ourselves financially which then leads to anxiety. And honestly, for many of us, it leads to a degree of selfishness and greed. And instead of calling selfishness and greed for what it is, we call it securing our future or leaving a legacy or taking care of myself first. I mean, this isn't this what we saw in the rush to stock up on toilet paper and hand sanitizer? Some people, most people, I think, probably just wanted to buy a package or two or a bottle or two. But there were a number of people, many people, who were loading up their carts with as much as they can carry. Now, I think we can all agree that you can get what you need without hoarding it selfishly, right? In the same way, we can secure our future, we can leave a legacy, and we can take care of our families without being greedy and selfish people. So, how do we break free from these factors? How do we break free from this particular rhythm of life? How do we learn to be the incredibly generous gospel people that God is calling us to be such that we can take hold of the life that is truly life? You know, this is the phrase that Paul uses in his letter to Timothy. He goes on to say in verse 17, in 1 Timothy chapter 6, 17, Paul says, Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. You know, the reformer Martin Luther once said that the Christian goes through three conversions. He goes through the conversion of the heart, the conversion of the mind, and then the conversion of the purse or the wallet, we would say today. And with each type of conversion, there is a degree of, of growth and learning that we have to go through as we wrestle with the truth and work it out in our lives. With respect to becoming incredibly generous gospel people, we can identify three elements of growth from this passage in 1 Timothy 6. One element of becoming an incredibly generous gospel people is to learn to trust. To learn to trust. If you look in verse 17, Paul says, Command them to put their hope in God, who richly provides with us everything for our enjoyment. Put their hope in God. You know, oftentimes our struggle is believing that God is our provider in the first place. And that really goes back to the very first sin, the first temptation when Adam and Eve questioned and doubted God's goodness. The devil led them to believe that maybe God doesn't really have their best in mind. And sometimes we struggle with that today. Does God really have my best in mind? Is he really aware of my needs? Will he really 
would he really watch out for me and my family and provide? And we forget to hold on to promises in verses like Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 that says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and don't lean on what you understand. Instead, all of your ways, in all of your ways, submit to him and he will direct your path. You see, the biblical perspective on money is really like most other things. Money in and of itself, it isn't good and it isn't bad. It's just there. But it can be a tool that God uses in our discipleship. Money and our interaction with it is something that the Holy Spirit can use to help us live and love like Jesus. You know, God is working on you no matter how much money you have or you don't have. His aim through the work of the Word and the Holy Spirit is to always be leading each of us to a deeper trust in Him. In Matthew 6.26, Jesus says, Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or store away things in barns, and yet your Heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? So remember who you are. Remember who He is. Remember who you are to Him, His adopted son, His adopted daughter. You are immensely valuable to the Father, so much that He sent His Son to die for you. So surely we can trust His hand of provision and protection. And you know, one key in learning to trust God is to learn to give out of grace instead of guilt. Learn to give out of grace instead of guilt. You know, in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7, Paul says, Each one should give what he has decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. You know, I like this verse because it captures something important about giving and generosity. We could easily preach sermons that convict people to give out of guilt. In fact, you know, much of the Bible's language about giving is imperative. It is a command. But there's also a lot of language, like here in this verse, connected to giving that's about joy and delight and peace. Convincing, to someone, convincing someone to give out of guilt is possible. It just isn't sustainable. They'll give for a little while, but since their giving isn't a matter of life change and character, their behavior will just revert at some point. So I'd rather teach about giving from the perspective of what it does for your heart, what it does for your walk with Jesus, and what it does to bless others. Besides, it's not your money that God is after. Not at all. He's after your character, your heart, your, your being. You know, maybe you're familiar with 1 Corinthians 13, 3, where Paul says, If I give all I have, but do not have love, I gain nothing. If I give all I have, but I don't have love, that, that part, that character part that God is changing and reforming in me, I can give everything I own, but if I don't have that, then there's really no gain to it at all. But here's the catch. Gift giving is a tricky thing. It really is. There's a complicated psychology that accompanies giving or receiving a gift. You know, say for example, if someone sends you a Christmas card and it's someone you didn't send a Christmas card to, usually what's your first reaction? It might be this small tinge of guilt that you didn't send them a card, but that's not what they intended, is it? Their hope was to bless you with joy, but in that moment, your emotional focus is one of guilt or obligation. Or say someone invites you over for dinner. 
I know that usually right after I leave someone's house, after being invited for dinner, I start thinking, okay, when can I invite them over to my house? There's this reciprocity, right? But that wasn't their purpose in inviting me in the first place, so I would be obligated to return the favor. Their purpose was to bless me with their hospitality and their friendship. And I know that, but there's the catch anyway, that sense of obligation. You know, maybe this is why so many of us struggle with the idea of the free gift of grace, because it's so difficult in our transactional society to imagine so great a gift that we cannot earn in any respect or pay back in any respect. Now, as Christ followers, we do have an obligation to give, not only from our treasure, but our talents and our time. But that's not how God wants us to be motivated. He doesn't want us to be motivated by mere obligation, and certainly not by guilt, but by the motive of, of gratitude and love and blessing to others. But it's hard to give in this way when there's recognition attached to it. So what if we tried something different? What if we tried to give in secret? To give in secret. And also in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says, when you give to the needy, don't announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by others. I tell you the truth, they have already received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. Then your father who sees, who sees everything that's done in secret, he'll reward you. You know, what if we look for ways to bless someone without receiving any credit or recognition or to serve in ways that are not visible you know, to, to most people, those behind the scenes opportunities to serve? You know, just last week, someone put an envelope in my mail slot at the office and the only writing on the envelope was the words gas money and inside was some cash. And what a blessing that was. This person or this family, they know that I've been driving back and forth from Chicago to Huntington uh, pretty much every week. And in their generosity, they decided to, to bless us with helping us out in that way. Now, I hope I didn't just ruin the blessing of giving in secret for that person or that family by calling attention to it, but it's a great example of giving in secret. I don't even know who this person is, but their reward is the joy of doing something to bless someone else. And that's all they need because the father saw that secret act and he will in turn show his favor. You know, one of the greatest ways to learn to trust God, to trust in his provision and his generosity to us is to show generosity to others. How do we grow in our generosity? By trusting more in God's generosity. And this is accomplished by practicing generosity. A second element of becoming an incredibly generous gospel people is to learn to be content. You know, contentment or the lack of it can be a big obstacle for many of us. You know, back in back in 1 Timothy chapter 6, he said in verse 18, he says, command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. You know, people who aren't willing to share their life are almost never people who are content with their life. And it's not just materialistic greed, but there's a personal greed, a greed of, of self. It's as if giving any portion of myself, my time, or my resources is a diminishing of who I am, 
my value, my importance, or my status. But contentment is about peace and security in Christ and in the provision. Paul talks about this in Philippians chapter 4. He says, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. You know, Paul says the secret to being content in any situation is being in Christ, strengthened by Christ, and trusting in Christ. That's the core of true contentment, fully owning your position in Jesus. Contentment in our personhood overflows to contentment with our possessions. I'll say that again. Contentment in our personhood overflows to contentment with our possessions. Whether you're struggling financially or you're doing okay right now, your belonging in Christ, your faith in the Father, your dependence on the Holy Spirit can lead you into a place of contentment, which then helps us reject greed and envy and selfishness and all kinds of covetous desires. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 10 says, whoever, whoever loves money never has enough, and whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This too is meaningless. Another way to say it is this. Don't worship your wealth. Instead, worship with your wealth. Don't worship your wealth. Instead, worship with your wealth. There are many verses and passages in the Bible that speak of giving and generosity more in terms of worship. One of my favorites is, from, is the scene from Nehemiah in chapter 12 where the wall of Jerusalem, after being rebuilt, is being rededicated in an act of worship. And it says that God's people offered great sacrifices. Offered great, this was their gift. This was their giving. They offered great sacrifices, rejoicing because God had given them great joy. The women and children also rejoiced. The sound of rejoicing could be heard from far away. And men were appointed to be in charge of the storerooms for the contributions, for those gifts, those first fruits and, their, and those tithes. Their worship was accompanied by the great offering of great sacrifices. Or really, the act of sacrifice was an act of worship itself. And that's really what our giving and generosity is today. It's an act of worship. This is why we include it in our worship gatherings. Not just because it's a convenient time to do it, but because we want to include it in the course of our worship time together. Just like in the days of bringing sacrifices to the temple, the first fruits of crops and the best of the livestock, also today we bring our offerings to our worship gatherings. And it is a sacrifice today. It's not slaughtering animals or burning crops on the altar, but it is a sacrificial act to give, to give up something. We are sacrificing something and trusting God to stand in the gap and to provide for us on account of what we have given up. This is why it's a good principle for giving and generosity to give until you really feel it. Look for that line, that amount of giving where you know you have to trust God now because of what you're giving up. For most people in the agrarian world of the ancient Middle East, 10%, a true tithe, was right about the right level. And But I think there's a principle there to give generously and sacrificially so that you have to trust God and to provide and to be content with what remains. Now, for a lot of us, 
10% is right about that level. But for some of us, it may have to be less, and that's okay, because it's still at that point where you are feeling that sacrifice. And for others, it should be even more because of how God has blessed them with abundance. And that's something that in your walk with Jesus and your fellowship with the Holy Spirit, that you and your family have to prayerfully determine for yourself and, and from season to season. But if we look for our satisfaction and our value in Jesus, the contentment of our souls in him, if we worship with our money instead of worshiping our money itself, and we understand the nature of sacrifice and God's provision, if all of this, then we will grow in our understanding and our experience of being content. The third element of becoming an incredibly generous gospel people is to learn to have an eternal perspective. Learn to have an eternal perspective. And this may actually be the most important because if we do learn to have an eternal perspective, it'll help us, it, that'll help us learn to trust and it'll help us to be content. You know, as gospel people, we are constantly being called by the word and the spirit to see the bigger picture. But as earthly people, we're constantly being called to focus on the here and the now alone. We are a people of abundant life and we believe that life begins now in Christ, not just later in heaven. But we don't only focus on the now, we know there's a future on the way. Eternity is coming. And it's this tension we live in where the kingdom of God is here, but it's still on the way. It's the already but not yet of our faith and our life in Christ. We live in fullness of life with Jesus now, but even more fullness at a later time. And the key to balancing this tension is to learn to have that eternal perspective. You see, God wants to save us from giving our lives to things that just don't matter. And in the end, money just doesn't matter, not, e not eternally. God can use it now in our lives for the sake of our righteousness and our discipleship, but it's staying here. It's not eternal. It has value now, but not eternal value. Your wealth in this life does not determine your wealth in the next. Did you know that? Your wealth in this life does not determine your wealth in the next. So let's learn to hold it loosely and to be generous with it. This is what Paul is talking about in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 19. He says, In this way they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. So how can we develop and grow in this eternal perspective? Well, for one, remember that everything belongs to God anyway, right? Job chapter 41, verse 11, God says, Who has a claim against me that I must pay? Everything under heaven belongs to me. God makes that claim. And in Psalm 24, verse 1, the writer says, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. You know, we really have nothing of our own anyway. We came into the world with nothing. We'll leave it with nothing. Nothing except our belonging in Jesus, our citizenship in heaven, and the assurance of the life that is truly life. This is an assurance we have because of the sacrifice of Jesus for us. This is another way to grow in our eternal perspective, to remember God's generosity shown to us in Jesus. His sacrifice and ultimate act of giving and generosity is something that we can never, ever come close to matching in any respect. 
but it certainly helps us understand what's important and eternal, people and relationships. John 3.16, for God so loved the world, there's the relationship, that he gave his one and only son, there's the sacrificial generosity, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. There's the eternal focus or the eternal perspective. So bring yourself back to the cross, his act of mercy, his giving of grace, the pardon from sin that you know because of the generosity of our Lord. Jesus is the most generous person who ever lived. He left the comforts of heaven, he took on human flesh, and he gave his life on the cross so that we might live in him. Another very practical way to grow in our eternal perspective is to actually engage in eternal things, to do things that have eternal impact, that matter eternally. It's like that eye-opening experience you had on your first mission trip, where maybe you got outside your usual experience and you saw the plight or the poverty of another land or community, and you came home with this sense that there are, just, there are more important things in life than the things that you've been concerned with for so long. You see, when we actually engage in ministry, we put our hands to the work of the kingdom, when we actually go and make disciples, it's, it's at that point that we see what's truly important. We see what's truly powerful. We see what's worthy of our time and our talents and our treasure. When you see someone come to the Lord for the first time, the power of that experience is, is overwhelming and it's humbling and it makes you want more, much more. That's why it's important for every Christ follower to not only be a good steward of their financial resources, but also a good steward of their spiritual gifts and their time. You see, every Christian is called to live a life of ministry. Not all of us are led to do that in a full-time vocational capacity, but every Christian is called to live a life of ministry. Um, and you're given the opportunity to do that, to serve in the church. And when we do, we see God's hand at work through our efforts. And something happens when we see that. Our priorities change. Our desires change. Our perspective begins to shift from the temporary to the eternal. And when we remember God's generosity to us, along with engaging in the things that have an eternal impact, it's at that point that we truly understand a verse like Philippians 1.21, where Paul says to live is Christ and to die is gain. So learn to trust. Learn to be content. Learn to have an eternal perspective. That's how we become the incredibly generous gospel people that God has made us to be. And did you know that God has invited us to put him to the test? In Malachi chapter 3, 10, 10, 11, and 12, he says, Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you, and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. You know, your full tithe, it isn't just your money, your treasure. It's also your talent and your time as well. How you spend your time and the things you commit to and use the gifts that God has given you. So what would it look like to put God to the test? What if just one month you doubled your usual giving to see what God does? Not for the church. I'm not asking for College Park. I'm asking for you. 
What if you did that one month, just one month, to see what, what God does in your heart and in your life? What if you're not a giver at all and you just started somewhere? Remember, God wants your heart and your character, not your money. But maybe that's an obstacle for you to overcome by just stepping out there and trusting in his promises. What if, and here's an idea, if our government follows through with this plan to send every American a check, what if we all prayerfully considered giving at least a portion of that to an organization like Love in the Name of Christ or to a food pantry? Now, some of you need to hold on to that money because your income is being really affected right now. So be wise with it, for sure. But there are a lot of us who, honestly, we don't need it. Or we don't need all of it. I mean, I think it would be right for all of us to at least tithe on it. But there are some of us who could even give the whole amount over to an organization of some kind that's on the front lines of support right now and trying to do a lot of good. But again, generosity isn't just about our money. Our treasure it's also about our time and our talent as I've said several times you know I was talking to Aaron Gideon the other day Aaron's the executive director of love in the name of Christ love Inc in Huntington and she was telling me about some very practical ways to love and to serve right now sure cash gifts are always acceptable and so is non-perishable food or household items like paper towels and cleaning supplies and the ever elusive toilet paper so when you're making the grocery store run Grab a few extra things for Love, Inc. But you know, you can also help out in serving. Right now, a big segment of the volunteer base of Love, Inc. are those who are in their 60s and older, you know, and they're not able to come out and help in any way. And in the meantime, Aaron and just a couple other people every week are packing 50 or 60 food supply boxes to distribute on Fridays for those in need. And Aaron was telling me that right now it, it is. It's just her and two other helpers. Church, what would it look like for us to double or triple that capacity? Certainly by the giving of our items, but even going to help pack the boxes. Aaron has assured me that they can do this in a socially distant, responsible manner. You know, and this is just one example. And now is the time, more than ever, for the church to grow in its identity as an incredibly generous people. And for the world to see by how we love each other and how we love our neighbors and how we love our city, not for the sake of attention or recognition, but for the glory of God and the witness of the gospel. May the world see that because we choose to do good, to be rich in good deeds and to be generous and willing to share, that we have taken hold of the life that is truly life and they can take up this life as well. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for being so generous to us, Lord, in our daily lives, certainly with how you provide for us and being such a gracious and giving God that we don't have to worry. We don't have to live in fear. We can trust in the faithfulness of our good God. But Lord, even more than that, we thank you for how generous you are, Lord, in, in, in giving us access to your throne to showing us mercy, to showing us grace and goodness. And Lord, we thank you for that grace we know in our life, that we are your children, that we belong to you, that we have nothing to fear, that we can trust you, we can be content in this life by the power of your spirit working in us and in the power of the word in our lives. Lord, would you make this happen in each one of us so that we can show the world your generosity and your goodness. 
in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.